Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. In just a moment, I'm going to read beginning in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. And this is our last sermon in this series on what Jesus thinks of the church. But uh, we will continue in the book of Revelation. Last year we did Christmas in Genesis, and so this year we'll have Christmas in Revelation. So we'll be in Revelation 4 next week. But this is the end of this series on what Jesus thinks of the church, because it's only here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus dictates these letters to the apostle John in order for him to give these letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And we've said that these letters have been very valuable information for us. Because as we listen in to what Jesus says about these churches, we hear Jesus commend certain churches for things that they're doing. And so as we listen in, we know the kinds of things that Jesus likes to see in his church. And as we've listened in, we've also heard Jesus correct these churches. And so it lets us know the kinds of things that we need to correct and the kinds of things that we need to turn away from if we want to be the kind of people Jesus wants us to be and if we're going to be the kind of church Jesus wants us to be. And so this has been valuable information for us. And so let's listen in now as Jesus speaks to this church at Laodicea. And let's see what he would have for us to learn at this place and at this time as he speaks to this church. Hear now the words of the risen Christ from Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you that you may be, that you buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich." And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together as we come to God's word and listen in on this letter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving these letters so that by listening in, we might more and more know what you would have of us as your people in this place at this time. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this word to make us look more like Jesus, to make us more the people that you would have us to be, to make us more the church that you would have us to be. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do all this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
We have a traditional three-point sermon today. There are just three points to the sermon. And the first one for my note-takers is this. Jesus is the greatest thing ever. Jesus is the greatest thing ever. He says that. That's the claim Jesus is making right here in the text in verse 14. Remember, he has identified himself in every one of these letters and told something about himself. And he's reached the crescendo here in this last letter in verse 14 where he says that these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, he doesn't just come out and say he's the greatest thing ever there. Why would that be the first point of the sermon if I'm going to say what Jesus is? Let me show you that's what he's saying. First, he says that he is the amen. That, that word is a word that means true. It means that something's valid. Sometimes when Jesus was speaking to people, he would say, Truly, truly, I say unto you. The old translations would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you. The word there is amen, amen, I say to you. Jesus is saying what I'm about to say is true, it is valid. But this word really carries more of a connotation than just that. You see, anything that is amen, it's it's true, it's valid. But it's true in the sense that because it's true, because it's valid, that it is binding on us. So when we say amen, we say this is true, this is valid, this binds my conscience. I'm going to live this way because this thing is true and valid. This is the foundation on which I will operate. I will operate as if these things are true. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, amen. I mean, truly, truly, I say to you, this is true. This is valid. This is something that you can build your life on. Jesus is probably referring here to Isaiah 65 and verse 16. One of the things we've learned in reading, uh, in reading Revelation, we've said, if you're not interpreting this scripture with other scripture, and if you're not interpreting it in light of the historical context in which it was written, you can get way off in Revelation. And so we've been very careful to do that. So when Jesus says he's the amen, he's referring to Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16 where you find the reference to the God of amen or the God of truth twice in that verse. And the first time it speaks of the God of amen as the source of all blessing for his people. So when Jesus is saying, I'm the amen, he's saying, I'm the source of blessing for God's people. This is where it comes when it comes by and through Jesus. And then Isaiah 65 goes on to say that it's the God of amen who is the creator, who is the originator of the new heaven and the new earth. You might have thought that came up for the first time in the book of Revelation, and we will see it in Revelation 21. But that's talked about in Isaiah 65, and it's the God of amen who brings about the new heaven and the new earth. And so Jesus is making that claim here. He's saying, I'm the source of all blessing for the people of God, and I'm the one who will create a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus said something similar in John chapter 14 and verse 6 where he's talking to his disciples, and he tells them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the amen. But he also says he's the way and he's the life. You see the connection of these things we're talking about here. Jesus as the amen is the one who is true. He's valid, but he's also the way and the life because he is the way in which we should live our lives. 
That because he is the truth, because he's utterly trustworthy, he is a true foundation that we can trust and on which we can base everything and we can build our lives on him. I had a great conversation at the back door after the 1030 service and somebody who was listening, we had a conversation about this, this point that we're making right here. Do you hear that there's a shift? Many times as people, 21st century Americans, we hear truth and what we think is this is something that is cognitive that we give assent to. And you need to understand that to the Hebrew mind, when it talks about truth, it means more than that. It carries this idea of something is true and valid, therefore it binds our conscience and changes the way that we live. In the Old Testament, sometimes the, the original Hebrew just says, I hear God. And in your English translations, it says, I obey or I walk in his ways. And that's because to the Hebrew mind, to hear God is to obey and is to walk in his ways because what God says is true and is binding and is going to change the way that I live my life. So catch that. If you're feeling, hey, this feels like more than what just truth would be, then you're probably hearing accurately what Jesus is saying. He's saying he's the truth. But he's saying he's God and he has God's truth as well. That's the next phrase where he says that he is the faithful and true witness. He's faithful in the sense that he's reliable. He's true in the sense that he's trustworthy or genuine. He's the real deal. But he's the faithful and true witness. Witness as to what? Witness as to what God is like and what God says and what God does and how God responds. He is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting, right there in John 14, after in verse 6 where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The next thing Jesus says is, if you know me, <laughs> then you know the Father. And Philip, one of the disciples at that point in, in chapter 14 and verse 8 says, well, will you just show us the Father? Can we just see the Father? Can we just see him? Will you just show him to us? And then Jesus responds to Philip and says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus is the true and reliable witness of what God is like. He goes on here and he says that he is the beginning of God's creation. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but he's making a huge statement here. If you have the NIV, he says, the ruler of God's creation. Some translations say the firstborn of God's creation. And whenever you have this discrepancy in translation, you know there's something that has a lot of meaning that's hard to convey. And so let's unpack this word and what it means. When it says the firstborn of God's creation, it's not saying that there was a time Jesus did not exist and then he was born. That is not what it's saying. He's the firstborn in the sense that he's the ruler, that he's the first among many brothers, the scripture says elsewhere, that he's the elder brother amongst the children of God in the sense that he has the right to rule and reign. He gets two-thirds of the blessing while we only get one-third, even though he shares that with us. That's what it means that this idea of rule is what comes from firstborn. And it's even in this idea of beginning. The word is arche, like archetype, or those kinds of things that we may translate. And so this word beginning means he's the chief or the greatest, we're getting to that first point, that Jesus is the greatest thing ever, right? When he says he's the beginning of God's creation, he's the greatest. And when we think beginning, we usually think first in the order of a sequence, because we kind of think that way. 
um, in, in a logical, sequential way. But that's not what this is saying. This is, when it says he's the beginning, it's more saying that he is the, the source of the sequence. That he's the source, the originator of what comes next. Now, how do we know that? You're just telling me that's what this word means. How do I know that? That he's not just the first one made, but he's the first that's making everything else. Well, we know it because God refers to himself in this way. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6, God says that he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Same word in that place. Before I leave this idea of Jesus being the greatest, that he's the chief, that because that's what this word beginning means, I need to point out to us that this church at Laodicea could not hear Jesus say this without thinking of Colossians chapter 1, which is what we said and used as our call to worship. Now let me talk about how they would make that connection, and then we'll talk about why. First, how could they possibly make that connection? This is the church at Laodicea. Paul wrote that to the Colossians 30 years earlier. Well, if you read the book of Colossians and you get all the way to the end in chapter 4, you know, when they start doing greetings and stuff, in, in Colossians 4 and verse 15, Paul says to the Colossian church, hey, take this, first he says, give my greetings to the brothers at the church at Laodicea, this church, and specifically those who meet in a certain person's home there in Laodicea. Then in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, take this letter that I'm writing to you, to the church in Colossae, and share it. Let the church in Laodicea read this letter as well. So Paul had said, let these folks read it. You see, there were three sister cities. See if you can imagine this. There were three sister cities that were all around a river. Heropolis, Colossae, Laodicea, all within a few miles of each other. And of course you can imagine that because that's where we live. Sister cities around a river. And so this church at Colossae is actually closer to the church in Laodicea than we are to First Pres Tuscumbia. And so Paul says, share this letter with them. And then when Jesus says this, they have to be thinking Colossians chapter 1. Think about it with me. Let's walk through it. I've got the call to worship that we just did. We just said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. <laughs> He's the faithful and true witness. That's what we just saw in Revelation 1, right? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We just talked about what that means. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It's saying that all creation has its beginning in Christ, that it was made through him, but it was also made for him. This is saying that all things find their purpose, their fulfillment in Christ, that they don't truly reach their purpose and their fulfillment apart from Christ Jesus. Then he says, and that's sort of in the past, he's made all things in the past, and then verse 17 says, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of his body, the church. It's beginning to say, okay, in the past he made all things. Right now, he's the thing that's holding everything together. Whew, that's good. I thought I had to hold it all together. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> Jesus is the one in the present. He made all things in the past. All things find their purpose in him right now in the present. He holds all things together. 
And then there's a shift to the future. It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What that's saying is that not only is Jesus the source or beginning of the first creation, but by his perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection, what the text goes on to talk about in verses 19 and 20, that Jesus is the beginning or the source of the new creation, that he's the firstborn of the new creation, which is exactly what Isaiah 65 says, which is exactly how we were reading Revelation 3. So I think we're reading this in a way consistent with the Scripture. It ends by saying that Jesus is the first one who did that in everything he might be preeminent. We don't use that word a lot, preeminent. What does that mean? It means that something preeminent is something that surpasses all others. It's the greatest. It's the finest. It's the best. It doesn't just mean that it's outstanding. It means it's the most outstanding. It doesn't just mean something that's excellent. It means it's the most excellent. (laughs) It's saying Jesus is the greatest thing ever, which is exactly what Jesus is saying here in Revelation 3 and verse 14, that he's the greatest thing ever. Why does Jesus start there with this church? Why is that the first point that Jesus makes? Well, that brings us to the second point of this sermon, because it's the second point that Jesus makes in the text. We're back in Revelation 3. And the next thing he says is this, Since Jesus is preeminent, then we must not be lukewarm about him. Since Jesus is preeminent, since he's the greatest thing ever, We must not be lukewarm about him. Look at the text in verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We just saw in the text how Jesus said that he was the greatest thing ever. And these folks here, Jesus is the greatest thing ever. And their response is, eh, okay. Yeah, he's great. I think about him sometimes. I guess he's pretty great. And Jesus says that is not the correct response to the thing that is the greatest thing, the thing that's preeminent, to the greatest thing ever. C.S. Lewis writes about this, about the appropriate response to Jesus when Jesus makes these claims about him. He's the greatest thing ever. He says you either have to just hate him and say he's like a devil who's leading people astray because he says he's the greatest thing ever and he's not. Or that you have to have pity on him because he's a crazy person, he's a lunatic, he thinks he's the greatest thing ever and he's not, in which case we would feel sorry for him. Or if what he says is true, is valid, is the amen, then we have to worship him. (laughs) We respond with great awe. We give him the very first place in our lives because he's the most important thing. But a lukewarm response. I mean, how could we respond that way? It's not even an option. It doesn't even make sense. And Jesus looks at this church, and they're neither cold nor hot. They're just lukewarm. And so Jesus says that he's about to spit them out of his mouth. Your translation may say spew them out of his mouth. Where are my medical folks out there? I mean, the word is emesis in the Greek. Vomit. The translators are being nice, right? This is a violent reaction. 
Jesus is saying this kind of response, when you see what's preeminent and you respond in a lukewarm way, that, 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 make, that nauseates him, that makes him sick. It's a violent response. That's how Jesus responds to this idea. Now notice, this church is not criticized for false ideas. We saw that in some of the other churches. There's no false teaching and there's no false ideas. They're orthodox. They know Jesus is preeminent. They've probably been declaring it for 30 years since they got the, at least the letter to the Colossian church. But the problem is there's no zeal. You see that there in verse 19 where Jesus says, So be zealous and repent. Zeal, zealous, another word we don't use a lot. It means to be eager about something. It means to desire something, to have passion. If you're not zealous, then you don't have this devotion at a level that brings transforming consequences to your life. Again, it's just a cognitive mental thing. It's not something that's working its way down into our heart and capturing our minds so that it changes the way that we live our lives or the way that we lean into the world. That's the problem Jesus has with this church. I wonder, do we ever do that? We know the truth. Our theology is good. We know that Jesus is preeminent. Are we lukewarm in our response to that? Let me just ask you, how, how often do you think about Jesus? How often do you talk to him? In the church, we, we call that prayer. How often do you talk about him? That could be in the form of praise, of talking about how great he is. That could be in the form of evangelism, telling other people how great he is. How often do you listen to him? He speaks in the world and in everything that happens, but he primarily and most clearly has spoken through his word. How often do you listen to what he has to say? How often do you think about him? How often do you read about him? Really, this idea of zeal, Jesus is not getting to just what we think in our head, but what's in our hearts. What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything else? What do you think about in the shower? What do you think about when you're sitting at a red light? What do you think about at night when you lay your head on the pillow and you're going to sleep? Most of us feel like we're really busy people. We think about what we have to do, what we have done, making lists, making sure we haven't forgotten anything. We think about what's coming next, what just happened. We spend a lot of time online seeing what other people are doing. Facebook, getting the news. Maybe you're beginning to think about the holiday, how you're going to decorate, or who's coming or who's not, or what you're going to eat. We spend a lot of time with TVs and movies. We talk a ton about sports in our culture. We have entire radio stations that are just devoted to talk of sports. Whole radio stations just for talk about politics. It's an election. We've read a ton. We've watched a ton. We've listened to a ton. We've written a ton about the election. And all those things are fine to do. I think it's fine to think about all these things. We should think about the election. But, but let's just take a minute to, to weigh these things. Something as important as the presidential election. This is the person who's going to be the leader of the greatest country in the world for the next four years. That's an important thing. You should read the news. You should be informed. 
But let's compare that. The leader of the free world for the next four years to the one who's preeminent. The one who always has been. The one who made all things. The one in whom all things find their purpose. The one in whom nothing makes sense apart from him. The one who will reign over, who always will be. The one who's creating the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, we ought to think and read about them both. (laughs) But when you really think about it and weigh it out, so much more of our hearts and our minds should be focused on him who is preeminent. Are we lukewarm about Jesus? Since Jesus is preeminent, we must not be lukewarm about him. How does that happen? How do people in the church, people who have been changed by Jesus, people who have his spirit, people who are coming to church and doing church stuff, how do people like that, people like us, how do we become lukewarm about Jesus? Jesus tells us very clearly in the text, it's the third point here, point three, we are lukewarm if we do not see our need for Jesus. He says it clearly in verses 17 and 18. Look what he says in the text. Jesus says, For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. There it is. These folks don't think they need Jesus. Jesus is not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And in verse 18, it's very clear in 17. You don't think you need anything. And that's why you're lukewarm about Jesus. Then in verse 18, it's very difficult. He kind of goes off on a tangent, starts talking about gold and garments and salve. <laughs> What's that about? Why would Jesus say, come, you need to come to me for gold and garments and, and salve? Well, this is one of those places you've got to know the history, the historical context. Jesus knows the details of every place that he's talking. He knows the details of your life. And he knew the details of these folks in Laodicea. This was a very rich city. It was so rich, in fact, there had been an earthquake in 60 or 61 A.D., about 35 years before this was written. A lot of the cities in this region had been destroyed. And so they appealed to Rome to get aid to rebuild their city. Laodicea did not appeal for aid. They had enough resources. They had enough gold. They had enough stuff. They rebuilt their city without outside aid. It was a very wealthy city. They had a lot of gold. Not only was the city rich, this church was rich. In church history, we read about how the church in Jerusalem was struggling through a famine, and so they write to the church at Laodicea asking for aid. So if we like passed a plate today to help those in need, and we kind of pulled out what we have in our pockets, these folks gave out of their pockets, and we read that the church at Laodicea gave 22 and a half pounds of gold to the church in Jerusalem. (laughs) Not only was the city rich, this church was rich. And Jesus said, you think you're rich. You think you have, but you are poor because you're lukewarm about me. Well, how did they get all this wealth? Where did it come from? (laughs) You might guess. Maybe something having to do with garments. Maybe something with Isav, you'd be right. In this area of the country, maybe it was because of the grass that they ate or the water they drank, but the sheep would produce this really glossy black wool. 
And they made this really fine fabric. And people from Laodicea sold this fabric, this really glossy black wool all over the world. And so some of the finest dressed people in the world came from Laodicea. And everybody wanted this fabric to make garments. Jesus said, you think you're okay because you can make these black, woolly, glossy garments. Jesus said, you need to come to me because you're naked. You're not the finest dressed. You need to come to me and get white garments that are clean, that are pure. And then, of course, as you might guess, the eye salve, the eye ointment, there was a medical school that it was renowned throughout the world because they had produced an eye salve or an eye ointment that would reduce the the loss of vision in folks, that would help weak or failing eyes. And so Jesus said, you think you've made it because you can produce this? You're blind and you need to come to me. See, what Jesus is doing here in verse 18 is he's putting his finger on the things that they put their hope and their confidence in. Their hope and their confidence was in these other things besides Jesus. And Jesus is pointing to those things that they're building their life on. Those things that they're taking confidence in. Those things that are making them think that they don't need Jesus. And he's saying, look, you can only get those things from me. I wonder if Jesus was talking to us, what would he put his finger on? And say, you think because you have this, you're okay. But you're not okay without me. I don't know. I think most of us who come here pride ourselves on being really nice, good people. Try to be nice and kind to one another. We try to be nice and kind to those. And so we're pretty good folks. I think Jesus would come to us and say, you think you're nice people. You think you're good people. You're not nice. You're selfish. Oh, you put on a veneer of being nice. But you need to come to me. And if you would come to me, oh, I could give you true gentleness. I could give you true compassion. I could give you true love for one another. Not just a sentimental niceness that you use to manipulate and get what you want. I believe Jesus would probably talk to us about money as well. I think he would say if you recognized your poverty... And you came to me, and you didn't put your trust in the things that you have. I'd make you rich. Maybe some of us rich in things. Probably more likely rich in contentment. That we would be satisfied in whatever our circumstances that God gives us. For some of us, our hope, we've given up hope for ourselves. Our hope is really in our children. We're really investing a lot of time working in them. And you can tell that's how we feel, because if they do really well, then we feel really good about ourselves, because we think we produce that. And when they don't do so well, we're in despair, because we think that's a reflection of us as well. I think Jesus would say to us, you think you can produce good kids? You think that's something you can do? You might can get them to be still in a worship service for an hour. Maybe you can do that. You can't change their heart. You can't change their mind. Oh, that you would come to me. I'm the one who changes hearts and minds. What would Jesus point to in your life? What would he call you to see as empty without him so that you would look to him instead? 
Maybe it's one of those things when I was asking you, what do you think about? Where's your heart? Maybe it would be one of those things. What is it for you? As I look at this sermon and I hear what Jesus is saying, it's just heavy. Gosh, I'm lukewarm because I don't see my need for Jesus, and we shouldn't be lukewarm about Jesus because he's preeminent, but that's just where I am. That's where my heart is. Is there any good news here? I feel convicted. It's just heavy. There is good news here. The good news is it's not too late. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. If you feel convicted by what Jesus says here, good, Jesus convicts those he loves. He corrects those. He lo- if you feel corrected, feel the love from Jesus. Now, you may think, gosh, because maybe because of the way you've been corrected in the past or, or, the, or you just don't like correction, it doesn't feel like love to us. Listen, Jesus loves us too much to let us seek life in other things that will not give us life. Do you see the grace in what Jesus says here? I don't want you to run to these other things because they're empty and they ultimately will not satisfy. Come to me and all those things that you worry about find their purpose and the fulfillment in me. That's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 6, down around verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Jesus has not given up. Do you see his graciousness? Look what he says in verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. If you hear his voice, if you hear Jesus convicting you today, open the door to him. Invite him in. Jesus is there. He's speaking. He's knocking. He's not given up. There is hope. There is a solution to lukewarm hearts. But listen, this is where I feel like we get off track. The solution to lukewarm hearts is not to get fired up for Jesus or for me to try to get you to work up some emotion or to get Lee to play some music that really gets us excited. That's not what the solution here is. Jesus says the solution is to invite him in, to eat with him, to spend time with him. The solution to lukewarmness is to open the door to Jesus, to eat with him, to fellowship with him, to spend long, uninterrupted time focusing on him. And you know what happens when we do that? We see that he is preeminent, that he's the greatest thing in the world. And all of a sudden, we're not lukewarm about him. Not because I'm trying to get fired up, but because I see the truth. And it's beginning to make a difference in my life. I don't know what you think when you hear Revelation 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I grew up Southern Baptist, and we use this verse all the time in evangelism. For people who are outside the church. We would talk about sin and how, you know, Roman Road, Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, Romans 10. Then we might use this and say, listen, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. And if you hear his voice and you open him, he'll come in and you can have a relationship with him. And listen, I think it's okay to say that. I think people, Jesus does work through people and through evangelism. I think he does woo people. He does show them their need. 
if they open the door to him, I think he does come into their lives. I, I think, I mean, if you've used it that way, that's fine. <laughs> but notice that is not the context here. That's not who Jesus is writing to. Jesus is not saying this to those outside the church. Jesus is saying this to people who are inside the church. People who've gotten busy and focused on other things. People who think that we're smart enough to do it on our own, that we have enough resources that we can figure it out. We'll Google it. We'll call a friend. That we don't need to call on Jesus unless it gets really bad. To people like that who don't see our need and have become lukewarm, Jesus comes to people inside the church who feel this way. And he stands at the door and he knocks. And he longs to come in and spend time with us. That's the context of this verse. The good news here is that Jesus wants to come in, that he wants to spend time with you. Even though we do things that nauseate him, Jesus still wants time with us and wants in our lives. What doors do we need to open to him? Maybe some of us need to let him in for the first time. Maybe some of us need to let him in. Maybe there are, are portions of our life, maybe there are areas that we have not let Jesus into. Listen, i got to tell you, Jesus is never satisfied until we let him into every room. And the truth of the matter is, we won't be satisfied either because only he can make each room what it's supposed to be. All things find their fulfillment in him. What doors do you need to open to Jesus today? What happens when we open the door? What does Jesus say that he'll do? He says he'll come in. He'll eat with us. It's not a big deal to us in our culture. We eat with a lot of people. We eat with people we don't even like if they're buying. But we've seen here, as we looked at food sacrifice idols, that, that eating with people is a big deal in this culture. You didn't just eat with anybody. You didn't share table fellowship with them. That if you had somebody in your home, because there weren't restaurants, if you had somebody and you, fed, you shared your table with them, it's like you were adopting them into your family. They became family. It's like you were forming an alliance with them. And that's what Jesus is saying. He, was, he is inviting you into his family, that he's a part of yours, that you have an alliance, that when we open the door, he comes in and eats with us, that Jesus is saying, listen, no matter what, I am for you, and I will never leave you or forsake you. And when we open the door to him, that's what we're saying to Jesus. No matter what, you are the most important thing. And even though I forget, I, I want to come back, and I want to acknowledge that. I don't ever want to wander from you. That's the picture of eating together here. It's that covenant relationship that we bind ourselves to one another in this glorious way. May God show us our need for him. May we see that Jesus is preeminent so that our hearts might not be lukewarm toward the greatest thing ever. Let's pray and ask God to do that in our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's, it's a heavy word. It's a, it's a corrective word. But Lord, we see that you correct us because you love us. I just pray for my own heart and for my brothers and sisters, yes, that we would see our need, yes, that we would hate our lukewarmness. But I pray that we would also see your love and the correction 
And that we see your concern and care for us, calling us away from things that will not ultimately satisfy. Help us to see the love in that. Help us to hear your voice. I pray that your love and your care and your concern for us would break our hearts. That we would hate making you feel like you're on the outside knocking. Oh Lord, help us to see our need helping us to open the door to you, that we might walk with you, that we might have a relationship with you, that we might taste and see that you are good and experience the greatest thing ever. Please come and do that, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.